This podcast contains sensitive content, which some may find disturbing. Information shared here should not be construed as medical advice. If you or someone you love needs help with trauma, chronic pain, or anything else we discuss here, please seek out a medical professional. All resources shared are for entertainment purposes only. All content represents the opinions of Kim and Anna and any special guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions of any organizations they work for. This is not ideal, but we're going with it. A mother-daughter podcast about chronic pain, trauma, mental illness, and more. Kim is a trauma therapist and certified addiction counselor who lives in Pennsylvania, USA. And her daughter, Anna, is a scoliosis sufferer and trauma survivor living in the tropical north of Australia. Join us each week as they discuss topics from their life experiences. Welcome to the show. Hello and welcome. This is Not Ideal, but we're going with it, the podcast. I'm Kim and I'm the mom. And I'm Anna. I'm the daughter. And today we have another guest star. Pew, 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 pew. (laughs) Damien, who is my friend from law school, who is getting his PhD, also in law. He is trying to get Medicare into Australian prisons, which is such a crucial issue. He has been to prison before. He taught himself to illustrate, to draw in prison. He has had art exhibitions now in San Francisco, New York, I think Sydney as well. Is that right, Damien? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's also, in case you can't tell, extremely downplayed about his accomplishments. It, <laughs> it took me about three months of being friends with this person to learn just how incredible his life is. Hmm. He's having a documentary made about him I think this year is that right Damien um they're filming like a uh, bits and pieces at the moment the uh the filmmakers yeah she's still in the process of pitching <laughs> yeah yeah so you can see how casual he is about things that do not happen to the to the average person <laughs> when I heard that I was floored and he was just talking about it like it was an average Tuesday he also is a published novelist and he's now writing his autobiography. He also has autism and he is going to be telling us kind of about his life story. He's also, he's been through some trauma and yeah, I am so excited. I've been waiting to do this episode for a long time. We were supposed to record an episode, Anna, about our time together in Australia. We got to sit down over coffee and get to know each other. It's such a privilege to have you now on the podcast. So welcome. Yeah, no, thanks. It's, uh, it's, it's great to finally be here as well. Yeah. Damien, we want to turn it over to you now. If you wanted to walk us through kind of what has happened in your life, what you've been through and kind of where it's led you. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. So um, I'll start uh, at childhood. I had a very interesting childhood. My, my parents actually um, met in prison. My, my father was a career criminal and my mother worked in the prison. And, and that was a very, very bad start to a relationship. Mm. I didn't realize that your mom worked in the prison. Oh, my word. See, now I'm learning so many new things, too. That's so interesting. Yeah, uh, needless to say, this relationship didn't work out too well. Um, my mother took me and left from living with him when I was about three. He was, um, he'd been quite uh, abusive to both of us. And then she took me and pretty much like ran away. And But then he found us via a private investigator. And then he 
as a manipulative ploy to regain custody of me, he um, fabricated allegations that she'd been abusing me because uh, he knew what the government's knee-jerk response would, to that would be, and that would be to take me out of the care of whoever was accused while the uh, while that was those insp- accusations were investigated. Mm. But I, I don't know what like child protection's like in America, but here it's quite dreadful, and so it took them like you know several months to investigate mm. that. Uh, and during that time, they put me in my father's care because he was my other parent, where I actually was the subject of abuse. So uh, and um, mm. yeah, and then so there was there was physical and emotional abuse at home. But um, then when I was about eight. I was uh, sexually assaulted by a like acquaintance of the, uh, my my father and stepmother who I was living with, and when mm. I told them about that, they didn't believe me, and that's where most of my trauma comes from. It took me a long time to realize that. Mm. Um, like many years later, I, I said to a psychologist, "I'm like, I don't understand why I'm so angry about it. All of child abuse is obviously terrible, but relatively speaking, the level of abuse it was mild in compared to what happens to some other people. So I never really understood mm-hmm. why I was so angry about it. And then she explained she's like you're not angry about the abuse you're angry your father and stepmother um weren't there for you and and didn't support you Mm -hmm. when you disclosed that so um I carry that trauma for 20 years I tried to bury it because I you know I the first time I tried to tell someone about it I wasn't believed and I was too afraid that if I told Mm -hmm. someone about it uh, again I wouldn't I wouldn't be believed again so I just kind of bottled it up I only told about four people over 20 years Mm -hmm. so then fast forward I'm I'm 28 years old and my partner at the time she's uh, told me that she was um, historically abused herself. You know, she was just trying to share with me. In fact, she was probably trying to do something that was healthy for her. But um, unfortunately, um, I had 20 years of repressed anger about uh, not getting any justice for what happened to me. So Mm -hmm. she's unintentionally re-traumatized me. Mm -hmm. And I've had like a, what I'd call a complete nervous breakdown. I was um, really struggling with my mental health for about a year. And then about a year after she told me that, I couldn't take it anymore. I I couldn't live with the, the guilt of knowing that her abuser was out there and that I hadn't done with it anything about it. That was where my mind was at at the time. And I went to that person's house. I was intending to assault him, but he wasn't home. But I was there and I was angry. Um, and so I kind of, I made the decision to set fire to his house. The, the whole house burnt mm-hmm. down. Um, nobody was injured. But uh, yes, that that will uh, get you in a little bit of trouble with the police. You were <laughs> immediately arrested or? Um, no, actually, um, that, that's uh, quite uh, yeah, complicated in itself. So um, when after I committed the crime, for a while, I was there was a sense of elation. I like, you know, I, I'd gotten what I'd wanted mm-hmm. for 20 years, which was, you know, mm-hmm. even while I was doing it, I, I knew in the back of mind that I was getting revenge for me by proxy, you know, a couple of people have said to me like, wow, I can't believe that you did that for your partner. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I, hmm. I didn't do that for my partner. I did that for me yeah. uh, because I was angry. I actually disrespected her wishes. She didn't want me to do that. That didn't help her healing process. You know, I don't feel any remorse for the person I was targeting, but I mean, if something's regrettable, it's the fact that, you know, it didn't help her at all. Hmm. So um, I went through this period of a, a brief elation afterwards because because um, I thought I'd gotten this revenge I'd been looking for. And then hmm. the newspaper printed uh, like the next week that the fire was caused by an electrical fault. Hmm. It was ruled accidental. And then I went into depression again 
because the whole purpose was to let the person know they'd been punished. Mm. And so mm. um, I was actually mad that I'd completely gotten away with it. So yeah, where, where my mind was at the time, I placed no value on my own life. I was, I'd been like sinking into depression for about a year. I, I had fleeting thoughts of suicide because I didn't want to deal with the pain anymore of what I thought I'd been burdened with. Mm. And um, so I had no regard for my you know, personal safety or wellbeing. I just wanted him to feel punished. Mm. I was actually relieved when I finally was, you know, arrested because uh yeah wondering if you're going to get arrested is uh quite anxiety inducing so uh yeah but yeah. Uh, it was about seven months mm. and then there was about I was on bail for several months again so I actually didn't go into prison until a year after it happened mm. I know from being friends with you that when the sentence was originally delivered it was going to be a sentence served in the community is that right yes when I was you know <clears throat> arrested and then my lawyer's like oh no, there's, there's ex- really extenuating circumstances here. Mm. Let's hire mm-hmm. a forensic psychiatrist and get their report. And uh, that was actually very helpful for me in many ways because I'd been very confused about a lot of things all my life. And uh, actually, the psychiatrist, she wrote in a report, she's like, you know, Damien's father spent his childhood trying to convince him that he was abused by his mother. My, my father kept up this lie in my childhood. He, he kept telling me that I, he'd rescued me from my mother, which was, an, uh, even at the time, I knew that wasn't true. Mm. Yeah, he, he kept peddling that narrative my whole life. But then when I told him I was actually abused, he wouldn't believe me. And my psychiatrist wrote like a report about how, how that would severely affect a child's you know, ability to, you know, um, think about mm-hmm. certain things. And, and I was like, yes, no wonder, um, yeah, I'm a, a little bit disturbed in that regard. Mm. The um, psychiatrist has written this report and the magistrate accepted that and I was referred to probation and parole here and so the, the short version is probation and parole they didn't have any funding to cater their community order to someone who had a, uh, a disability namely autism so they had no option but to say I wasn't suitable for the program and then that le- left the magistrate with uh, no option but to uh, send me to prison so if I didn't have mm. autism I wouldn't have gone to jail because I could have just seen a regular psychologist. Uh, so when did you you get the autism diagnosis? Um, not until I was 25. I was married for a couple of years to a woman in Nashville and I was over there and we were going to couples counseling because, you know, we, we trauma bonded <laughs> just like my parents did. Kind of, you know, history repeats itself. And But, yeah, we were going to see a couples counselor and I wish I had a recording of that session because I'd love to know what, what exactly it was that I did that's like that triggered the counselor mm. but she, she just kind of I said something and she stopped me and she said mm-hmm and Damien has ever anyone ever told you that you have um autism mm. and I said I don't really even know what that is uh, like the, mm. uh, so this is like uh what like 2008 so I went home and, and I googled it and just made it made sense for everything in my life really yeah how did that make you feel in terms of yeah. learning that you might have autism back then it was very life-changing like all of a sudden just everything that hadn't made sense my whole life just kind of fell into place Mm -hmm. so I was actually like kind of uh, there was a you know went through a period of elation that night after I yeah, I remember, I still remember it. I read the yeah, the Wikipedia article on Asperger's syndrome and pretty much um, every like, you know, symptom of autism, uh, except I, <laughs> I remember there was only like, there's like, you know, several like symptoms and every single one of them like just explained everything. The only one that I didn't have was a like physical clumsiness. I actually used to be an aerobics instructor. Mm-hmm. And a massage therapist. Damien yeah. has lived about a hundred lives in his, uh, yeah. in his <laughs> lifetime. Did you get any care at that point, or did you? Was it just sort of like, okay, this explains a lot. Now I can kind of be aware. Um, yeah. So th- that was the response at the time. It wasn't until about like maybe three years later, I, I actually went and you know paid the money to like have you know several sessions with um, someone who did specialize in autism. And yeah, she, like not surprisingly, she confirmed that. And I remember she actually said at the time, like, well, why do you want to be diagnosed? Do you want therapy or any? 
ways to help manage this. I'm like, oh, no, no, I think I'm self-managing it well enough. I'm, I mostly just wanted to know for sure. I didn't really actually do anything with that information rather than like some self-management um, until I was basically until not long before I was arrested. I, uh, I actually started getting therapy for the like first time. After I committed the crime, I, uh, it occurred to me that I maybe had some anger issues and needed to talk to someone. And uh, so I started getting therapy actually mm-hmm. before I was arrested. And up until this point, you know, obviously you're a gifted artist and gifted in multiple ways. Was any of that giftedness evident to you at that point? Um, when I was in like, you know, uh, primary, um, elementary school, I got a lot of compliments for how well I could draw, but I, I literally can't remember drawing anything between high school starting and being in prison. Mm. I, something I was repeatedly told all my life was that uh, like, especially from like teachers in high school, they told me I was very gifted and they didn't understand why I was doing so badly in class or one of the reasons I was, well, there was also a lot of things going on at home, so that didn't help, but also, mm-hmm. uh, because I have autism, I'm sensitive to sound and I, and I find it very hard to absorb anything in a classroom environment there's just too much noise like, and even just little things like you know like you know, a dozen pens writing you know people whispering up the back like it's not like other people wouldn't think it was noisy but I, I can't hear mm. the, the teacher speaking if, if there's uh, like any kind of like a noise coming from different directions so all my life and then like I actually had um the the relationship I was in uh the person who told me that she'd been abused as well we were both having a really bad influence on each other mm-hmm. she said I was capable of so much more and thought I had like no ambition and and um I kept going through this cycle um because I have autism I find it difficult to obtain employment and so I'd go through this cycle that went for 10 years where I would um get sick of being unemployed and so then I'd apply for a job start up like lowering my standards and applying for jobs that I knew I wouldn't be good at like customer service I'm terrible at customer service autism and customer <laughs> just do not go together and so then I'd apply for <laughs> (laughs) for those these jobs even though I knew they were terrible because I was sick of the stigma of being unemployed and also being poor and then I'd apply Mm. for these jobs and then I'd get fired from the jobs and then I'd sink into this depression and be like like, I'm gonna uh, try and find a job that's more suitable to me and then this cycle would just repeat like after about six months I'm like well I'm sick of being poor again now I'll apply for anything and and so um, I was very unhappy in life in general I was very depressed Mm. and because I knew what I was good at but I um like I always said to people I want to I want to work with like you know plants or animals animals or like just anything except other than you know customer mm-hmm. service and, anything other than people yeah yeah so I, I actually mm-hmm. I knew what I what I needed at the time but I uh, it was uh, all my life people had told me that I had a lot of potential and then they were also angry at me because I I hadn't you know found it yet you know my, my, I remember my mm-hmm. my science mm-hmm. teacher in high school he was actually like a source of some anguish for me because like he kept telling me oh you, you, you're, you're capable of so much more and you're not achieving it and and mm-hmm. but but he was like I had no idea as to why so that just made me more depressed you know mm, um, sure. and, and this continued up until that last you know toxic relationship I had before I went to prison yeah. mm. well and it's so interesting too just having the double whammy of autism and then trauma both of those things coming together yeah I but when um when I was actually diagnosed with uh, autism I've, I've still got the um, psychologist report and she said uh, my diagnosis was complicated by my traumatic childhood and it's it's even today it's it's mm-hmm. difficult for me to understand what parts are PTSD and what parts are autism and where they overlap Mm. trauma impacts how I interact with people as well. Mm. Now we fast forward and because they couldn't accommodate the autism, they were going to decide, well, we have to do something. So they put you in the prison. And can you talk to us about what happened next? I actually went in with a very good attitude. Like uh, people kept saying to me, like, are you afraid to go to prison? And and, like, to be honest, I'd been through so much trauma in my life. Um, The Mm. prospect of going to prison didn't actually rate that highly. I wasn't afraid to go in. And I just finished my undergrad 
undergraduate degree. Mm. I was like, oh, you know, worst case scenario, I'll get a year in prison and then I'll use that time to start a master's degree. Because by that stage, something that occurred to me, I, I went to, I after years of failures in employment, I went to do a job aptitude test. And my job aptitude test came back. My two top positions were uh, suited for me were librarian and archivist, which are basically two sides of the same coin. It's, it's almost the same job. And mm-hmm. that was something that had ironically never occurred to me because my mother is a librarian and we have a strained relationship. So I'd kind of just avoided things that she was <laughs> interested in. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I realized I'm like, I actually got a job as a, like a library assistant and it was perfect for me. And so I'm like, yes, I want to be a librarian. This would be perfect. Mm-hmm. So I went into prison and I'm like, oh, you know, I'll just, I'll just start uh, my master's degree it'll be a, it'll be a quiet place to study turns out study, like I've actually looked into this because I've re- researched prison education quite prolifically and it's relatively easy to study in American prisons in fact in some prisons like doing your GED is, is mandatory yeah you, mm-hmm. you can't do that in Australian prisons really and they're like well you can't study at all and I was like mm. well that presents a problem and then I um <laughs> I had my mandatory appointment with the programs officer and she said oh Damien, you've been assessed at a low to medium risk of reoffending, which I believe is the lowest setting you can get. And she said, what this means is not only do you not have to complete any rehabilitation programs while you're in here, you're not eligible to complete any, even if you want to. Um, We've got limited resources and only people assessed at medium high or high are eligible for rehabilitation. So I was like, okay, so no education, no rehabilitation. And then I had my, um, the other one was with the prison psychologist and I told her the truth. I told her that, you know, um, after I committed the, the crime for the first time, I realized I really needed to talk to someone and I'd gotten a mental health care plan before I was arrested and I was talking to someone and it was really beneficial. And I said that I thought it'd be really beneficial for me to continue my therapy in prison. And mm-hmm. she said something to me that has actually you know, motivated me to do my PhD. And mm-hmm. what she said was, um, Damien, everyone in here would benefit from therapy, but there's no funding for that. My job's just to assess whether people are suicidal or dangerous. So um, oh there's a lot of psychologists working in prisons in Australia, but uh, and this gives this misleading impression that there's therapy in prison, but the psychologists, they're only employed by the prison system to write assessments and reports for things like parole. Mm. They do not provide any therapy. Wow. So uh, that was the point where I started, you know, panicking in prison because I'm like, okay, ten months, uh, no education, no rehabilitation, can't no study, therapy, can't work. Yeah. yeah. So what the hell am I going to do? Right. So uh, out of like sheer desperation, really, like I've been a prolific reader all my life, and I'd kind of always uh, had this ideas for the beginning of a story in my head. All I really had in my um, in my cell was uh, like a pen and paper. But anyway, the, um, I started writing a novel. And that kept me very busy uh, for about five months. It took me five months to finish the first draft. Mm. Yeah, that, that I was writing every single day. It was it was my way of escaping into the, like the fantasy world I'd created. And I also used the novel mm-hmm. as a way to explore some things that you know I've been thinking about. Um, Do you want to give the name of your novel for our listeners listening? If they want oh, yes. This so, is uh, your yes, first uh, published novel? Yes. Uh, so the book Scarred. Um, it's published under my name. In America, I know you can get it through Amazon at least. You can get it through bookshops in Australia. I'm not sure about overseas. A quick fun fact about Damien is that he has a tattoo of the ISBN of that book on his, is it your right forearm, is it? Yes. Yeah. I um, it, yeah. That was actually um, important for me. I joined the military because I was looking for this, like this sense of family that I've never really felt in my life. And I very 
very much did not find that there. Yeah. While I was in there, like I, for, for a time, I wanted to, you know, get my military service number tattooed on me. And then when I went into custody, like some people, like this was something I was never going to do, but like uh, some people had their like prison ID number tattooed on them. And then I was like, well, what number like represents my story? And so mm. the book's a work of fiction, but I drew from so many like uh, I used traumatic things that had happened all throughout my life and up to like, you know, my mid to late 20s as as inspiration for parts of those chapters. So essentially, even though it's a complete work of fiction, that novel kind of symbolizes a large part of my life. And that was the number I wanted to take with me from prison. And to this day, uh, people ask me if it's my prison ID number, because they just see this number on me. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say, I think that I think I asked you that too, because yeah, pr- probably first... most people do. Yeah, yeah, I did. Because When I very first met you, one of the things that made me think, oh my word, I could definitely be friends with this man, is that you have a Latin tattoo on your other, is it your other arm? Uh, yes. Veritas yeah. Equitas, yeah. Truth mm-hmm. and Equality, right? Uh, truth and Justice, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was, and so I went up to him, I was like, oh, your tattoo, Truth and Equality, that's so cool. Because we, seriously, that was our very first interaction was me saying, mm. oh, that's such a cool tattoo. And then when we started talking more, I said, oh, so what's this number here? Is that your prison ID? And anyway, now I feel <laughs> dumb because, <laughs> <laughs> because I've learned that every other simpleton has asked that but you know that's all right it was the start of our friendship so it's quite I think I feel like it's a kind of a natural uh, assumption to make because you know you find out I've been in prison and then I've got this number on my forearm yeah yeah (laughs) can you tell us what the very first thing you did when you left prison was and also why that was oh uh yeah so um about 10 weeks before I um got out of prison I started getting a toothache and I went to the, the nurse and I said, I've got a toothache. Can I see the dentist? And she said, look, I can put your name down on to see the dentist, but the waiting list is a lot longer than 10 weeks. All I can really do for you is, is give you Panadol, uh, um, yeah, Paracetamol. Tylenol. And I said, well, look, I'm in pain. I can, is there any chance you can uh, let me make a phone call to my dentist on the outside so that I can get this sorted as soon as I get out? Because I, I do not want to get out and then have to, you know, maybe my dentist is booked out for six weeks. She, she was a bit taken back. She's like, yeah, I don't see why we can't do that. Apparently no one had ever asked before. Mm. And I remember the funny, <laughs> the last day I was in, you know, uh, my, my friends were all there and they're like, oh, you're getting out today. Yeah. What are you going to first, the the, the liquor store or, or the brothel? And <laughs> I said, actually, I'm, I'm going to the dentist. And mm-hmm. yeah, Holy they- cow. I, hope every, I hope every single one of our listeners knows why Damien and I are such good friends. I love yeah. this story. <laughs> but I, and like everybody in there, they, they looked at me like I was the, the world's biggest moron. They're like, they're like that's, a, you know, <laughs> the last thing I'd be doing. And then I went straight from the dentist to actually the courthouse because I wanted to pay my court fees. All right. You're in prison and you have written. <laughs> so picture this, Damien, you're in prison. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're realizing that it is way worse than you thought before or way more boring you right yeah well also just lack of services yeah. lack of rehabilitation you know lack of options yeah at some point b- decide to do your art talk us through that transition between now i've written this novel and now what do i do yeah so um i finished the novel and i actually i was um one of the guys in my wing he could tell that i was upset and i and he asked me why and i said i'm like i finished my novel last night and he was like well, well isn't that a good thing and i was like well yeah but what the hell am i going to do now you you know, mm-hmm. I, um, that was what I was, I was afraid of not having anything to do and like kind of going brain dead and just, you know, sitting alone with my thoughts was, uh, when I couldn't have any therapy was, was not a good, you know, healthy for me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, and he actually just kind mm-hmm. of said it on a whim. He's like, uh, have you ever drawn before? And I'm like, well, not since I was a child. And he's like, I'll give you my old sketch pad. Uh, that'll give you something to do. Oh, 
What a great dude. He gave me his old sketch pad and I didn't know what to draw. So I, I um, you can order like magazines in, in, in prison. And, you know, I, I just went through like some of the magazines that other people that didn't want anymore. They were just kind of sitting in the common area. And I like I went through and, and I just found a couple of like pictures with a lot of detail in them. Like it was like faces and and I started drawing and I was like, oh, that, that's not bad. Maybe I'll keep doing that. And new magazines would come and I would flip through them and I would be looking for makeup ads because that's the only time you see mm. like a face, face very close up. I would get so excited. Yeah, I've never been so excited to see a makeup ad in my life. And I, I, I'd, um, <laughs> I'd go through the magazines and I'd find these faces and, and I just kept practicing. And people kept saying, I thought you'd never drawn before. And I'm like, I, I hadn't. Uh, this is just, I guess, like yeah, mm. a talent I'd forgotten about because I, I remember I got a lot of compliments as a child. People were paying me, you know, in, in food. You know, there's no you know actual currency in prison. You, you know, people pay each other in like, you know, um, you know, food that's ordered and things. But um, pretty much, yeah, so first half, writing the book, second half, drawing. and But then the whole time I was also supplementing that by reading I um I read 63 books in that 10 month period I, I will never break that record I don't think but uh yeah so so that's what got me through my sentence wow can I ask a quick question yeah <clears throat> this might seem trivial but some people might be interested and I'm definitely interested what was your standard rate in prison was it like a pack of ramen noodles or like <laughs> what was it what was your preferred you know form of compensation you know this is actually kind of funny so i've got an, uh, an art exhibition on at the lockup here in newcastle at the moment and just this morning i got an email from the art gallery asking me what price i want to set for my work i've talked to a lot of artists and we have the same problem like it, we find it very hard to like, you know, price our own work. I was kind of hoping the gallery would price it for me. Mm. So mm. I didn't really know what, uh, like what to charge him because I'm a bit, uh, I've just got a, like a shy personality. Sometimes I, I remember a guy, he gave me his like a, what's called a buy-up form. So his form for what groceries he wanted to order for the week. And he's like, oh, he's like, oh, thanks for drawing my kids here or order whatever you want. The limit was like a hundred dollars. But I mean, I, I still didn't feel comfortable using that whole amount. So I only ordered about $50 worth. So there wasn't really a, a going rate. I just kind of accepted whatever. I had a hard time pricing my art then and I still do now. But I mean, I'm, mm. I'm charging more than, you know, half a dozen cans of tuna now. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So you're doing your artwork and you're coming close to the end of your sentence. Is it occurring to you at this point that something needs to change in the prisons? Oh, uh, definitely. Like, I mean, that, that probably, you know, occurred to me in the first couple of weeks. That was a progressive thing, for example. Um, so the prison I was sent to uh, was a working camp. So everybody who worked, worked manufacturing things out of timber, mostly pallets, for, the, for private corporations. And I remember I went into my overseer's office one day and he had his head in his hands. And I was like, are you okay? And he's like, oh, we're so behind quota. Even if I put everyone on overtime today, there's no way I can make quota for their order. You know, I'm, I'm in a world of crap. I just had this kind of surreal moment where I'm like, this is what's wrong with the prison system. The, the goal of this prison is to generate profit for this private corporation. Mm. Whereas, and there are people here who want to study and they're not allowed to. The thing that was more um, important to me was the fact that I wanted therapy while I was in there and I was told that, um, mm -hmm. that I, A, it wasn't available, B, I, I got some bad news, uh, like uh, basically there was just things going on in my personal life that sent me into a bit of a depression while I was in there. You know, I was told I couldn't get any therapy when I th first went in and I was, and but then my mental health deteriorated. I'm like, well, maybe now that I'm you know, having you know, fleeting thoughts of suicide, they'll maybe give me um, some help. And first of all, they told me that the only thing they could do for me was give me the phone number of a counseling service that I could call once I was released. That was the only mm. mental health they could give me. And secondly, they told me that because I'd 
informed them that I had feelings of suicide, they were going to lock me in solitary confinement. Oh my Yeah, word. so there's, there's no therapy in prison, but the prison still has a duty of care to make sure you don't self-harm. It's not even specifically the prison's fault. They're working with the cards that have been dealt. Yeah, that they've still got a duty of care to make sure you don't mm-hmm. self-harm. So the only way they can do that in the absence of therapy is by keeping you under 24-hour observation. And the only place they can do that is in the solitary confinement cells. Mm-hmm. Which undeniably makes things worse. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Everybody comes out of solitary confinement worse than they went in. But that's the thing. Like prisons mm-hmm. in Australia, probably everywhere, uh, yeah. They don't measure their success based on prisoner satisfaction. Mm-hmm. The Productivity Commission measures success, amongst other things, on the number of escapes and the number of deaths in custody. Mm. So now that you are out of prison and you're working on your PhD and your goal is to get Medicare into prisons, which for our listeners who are outside of Australia, Medicare is the socialized healthcare system. And in prison, that doesn't exist, which is what Damien was talking about earlier on in the podcast, how he had very, very limited services. So how does having Medicare actually, I mean, if they don't have the services... What difference would it make if you had Medicare? Something that politicians harp on about here is they're like, oh, but prisoners get free healthcare. Free, they get free healthcare. Uh, yes, technically that's true. You, you can get a free box of paracetamol or Band-Aids from the nurse. But our healthcare system is based around Medicare and prisoners are the only people who don't have access to it. It wasn't actually designed as a punitive thing. It was just they were left out of Medicare at the start as a cost-saving measure. And because our entire healthcare system revolves around Medicare, the simple re- reality is that prisons cannot, with the funding they're given, they cannot afford uh, to provide certain services without the Medicare rebates that anybody else would get. Ah, so okay, certain things I just see. don't exist. So there's no therapy because therapy is covered by what we call a mental health care plan in Australia, which is provided through Medicare. And so without I those see. Medicare rebates, uh, yeah, they have to play for the entire psychologist fee. So Damien, yeah. that is your now focus with everything that you're doing. You have this, what's the name of your studio, your art studio? Or your magazine? The um, magazines are called Paper Chained. Okay. Yeah, I was making this art and writing. I wrote the novel, but I wrote a couple of short stories as well while I was in prison. And then I was making all this art and I was very frustrated because there was no creative outlet for prisoners. Um, So all my art and writing just gathered in a box under my bed. And so I said to myself, I'm going to, when I get out, I'm going to start up a prison magazine. Thankfully, somebody else beat me to it, which was a good thing because I had to rebuild my life. And so that took some pressure off. And so instead of reinventing the wheel and having two magazines at once, I came on board with her project. And then uh, in 2021, she said she couldn't do it anymore. And I was the only person who'd worked with her the whole time. So she asked if I was interested in taking it over. And so now I'm the editor. So the magazine goes out to prisoners across Australia and also in the US or who all does it go out to? Yeah, well, it goes out to... Um, basically anyone who asks for it. Uh, we have a handful of subscribers in the US, a handful of regular um, contributors, actually. Since COVID happened, uh, they've brought tablets into New South Wales prisons for the first time. So we actually go out digitally on the tablet systems for prisoners in this state here. And then we have a physical mailing list for um, prisons in other states in this country because uh, they don't have tablets. But then also a few prisons now actually print the magazine directly and then distribute it to prisoners themselves. And all the artwork and articles are written by prisoners? Like 90% of the content comes from people currently in prison. We do get some contributions from former prisoners. And because the magazine started getting bigger and bigger, it got to the point where I'm like, I, I can't I can't volunteer my time on this anymore. It's too big. And long story short, I got some funding.
funding for that. So now, now I'm employed to make it. I've created my own job. But one of the requirements of funding, which is something I'm actually very happy about, is that I also generate content for the magazine. That is, I guess, a full-time job or is it a part-time <laughs> job for you? Good question. Um, it's part-time at the moment because uh, you can read the magazine instantly for free online. It's at paperchain.com. But uh, yeah, at the moment, that's just part-time uh, because that's what funding I was able to be given. Um, people keep asking me what I want to do with my PhD and I'm like, Honestly, I'm already in my my dream job. Mm. When I first got out of prison, I, I because of my experiences in there, I, I kind of wanted to do some kind of studies to change things in the criminal justice system. But I only had a bachelor's degree and I still wanted to be a librarian as well. So I, I did the master's in that. And then I worked as a librarian for a couple of years. And then the library I was working for ran out of funding. Then this PhD opened at the exact same time I became unemployed. So I applied for the PhD and that now I'm doing that. People keep asking me where I want the PhD to go. I'm like, I'll I don't really want to go anywhere. Like I want to improve services in prison. And then ideally I'd like to go back to making my prison magazine, you know, full time if the, if the company that employs me has the funding for that. And just to say the name uh, of the website, Paper Chained, that's P-A-P-E-R-C-H-A-I-N-E-D.com because I put in paperchain.com and that's not yes, what you want. I did the exact so- same thing when he told me, yeah, yeah like exactly. last year. Yeah, everybody does that actually. I, I, um, I should spell it out more because yeah. The so past tense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's excellent. And then you're also still doing your art and you have exhibits all over the place. I know on Instagram, people can see the progression of your art. Can you give them that Instagram handle? My uh, yeah, Instagram handle is um, at embers of retribution, which a lot of people like, uh, like follow me for years. And they're like, Oh, I just got it. What your handle? Because you know, you know, I, I, I burnt down the house house in an act of revenge. And um, you mm-hmm. know, the business name is actually called vigilante studios. But that was already mm-hmm. taken. So I, I'm like, well, what am I going to call it now? I didn't want to do that thing where it's like a vigilante studios one or, you know, underscore or something. And what's the best way for people to reach you, Damien, if they want to support the magazine or if they wanted to ask more about your art? The only social media I'm on is on Instagram. It's just at Damien Lenane and the website's uh, DamienLenane.com. And you can see a lot of the art and everything else I'm, I'm doing um, on there. I actually have a uh, a podcast page of my website where I show all the podcast interviews I've oh, done. So right. uh, yeah, this one will be up on there eventually. So yeah. Is there anything in particular you want to make sure to share with our listeners about what you found most helpful in your own trauma recovery or anything like that that you want to share? Yeah. So uh, the first thing that uh, like immediately comes to mind is that uh, you know, I got dealt a pretty rough hand. I think, you know, I, I I wasn't believed as a child about the abuse. And so because of that, I kept it to myself because I'm like, what's the point in talking to people? Mm. So, so I bottled it all up. And when, when I bought, when you bottle things all up, it, it becomes this kind of secret by default, you know, and it's very difficult. I felt like it just weighed very heavy, heavily on me. And it was, yeah, it was very difficult to even tell like someone I'd been in a relationship with for, for a very long time. Then I started uh, getting therapy and I started talking about what had happened. And it was kind of really incredible for me how much things changed, how easy it became to talk about it. Once I started that ball rolling, like, you know, I I was too ashamed to tell like my partner that I'd been abused uh, like two years into a relationship. Whereas now, like just on the weekend, I actually um, gave a talk here at the Newcastle Writers Festival in front of a crowd of people I didn't know. And I told them the whole story. Mm. And the more I find at least that I share the story, the less that it becomes, you know, it's not a source of shame anymore. It's not a secret. And, you know, uh, now I'm on the mindset. Well, I'm like, well, and this is completely true. Like, 
why 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 should it be difficult for me to tell a um, a room full of strangers that I was abused mm. because I didn't do anything wrong? Mm-hmm. The, the the best advice that I can give or what worked for me is that the, the more you talk about it, the easier it becomes. And you, you don't have to talk about it with a psychologist. Mm. Sometimes a bad psychologist can be worse than you know no psychologist at all. But um you know yeah, <laughs> but just find someone you're comfortable with and start uh, trying to heal through talking about it and realizing that you're you're not alone. Mm. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Anna, did you have any questions? No, I mean, I'm just so thrilled that Damien, that you were willing to come on the podcast. I mean, Damien and I go out for coffee and we meet up in class and, you know, every time, every time we talk, I find out more and more incredible things about his life and his history. Yes, it's such a, such a wonderful story of just that persistent trying to find a way out. And then actually now speaking out on behalf of people that haven't got a way out yet. I love that. If anybody wants to, and I think uh, if you end up looking up Damien's personal Instagram page, or maybe it's also uh, Embers of Retribution, I forget which one has, because one has an illustration of you with your mohawk. Damien and I once went out for coffee on Halloween and I walked into the cafe and you know how when you're meeting, meeting up with somebody in a public place, you kind of do like a quick scan that was completely unnecessary for me because Damien on Halloween had his full fuchsia pink uh, mohawk, which is actually quite, it's got quite a bit of, you know, height to it. And I remember walking into that cafe and being like, wow, this is seriously one of the coolest friends I've ever had. As I understand it from Anna, you have the fuchsia mohawk sometimes and sometimes you don't. Are we currently... (laughs) <laughs> Do you currently have the mohawk? I always have it. It's just I, I very rarely actually spike it up. Oh. Yeah, he normally keeps it in like a little yeah. ponytail. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it's quite striking and it is very dramatic. It's kind of your signature, isn't it? Yeah, actually the documentary maker who's doing the film on me, she, she's like, please don't get, get rid of that before we, at least before we finish right. filming. She's like, that's your signature look now. I'm like, yeah. Well, Damien, you, you just sound like a, a force to be reckoned with uh, having been in the system, all of the things that you learned by being there and having a voice for the people there now and wanting to get them care. That's just phenomenal. And we just wish you the best of everything, lifting oppression off of a system that's based on oppression anyway. It doesn't have to be an oppressive system that's also oppressive internally, Mm. you know, where they're not giving support or not giving, that's just so sad. I'm I'm not saying that our prison system is, is tons better, but I do know we have a lot of education and rehabilitation and we do have therapy services and things like that yeah i mean and, and i completely understand like so a lot of people don't have a lot of sympathy for prisoners but i mean the, the uh the thing you have to ask yourself is you know what do you want the purpose of the prison system to be do you want people to to get out and stop committing crimes or do you want them to come out more depressed and angry than when they went in and exactly you know, so that that's people don't completely understand what i'm doing it's not about just the people in prison it's about you know improving our society in general you know it's about Absolutely. keeping you know, the community safe as well everyone should have an opportunity to get well you know, every, everyone should have an opportunity to heal. And I just love this fight that you've had to heal, which I know that many people, that fight gets beaten out of them. And so to have somebody who has overcome that and is continuing to fight to heal, not just for yourself, but for the people who even probably many of have given up on the on fighting for healing. Mm. Thank you again so much, Damien, for being with us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I, I really enjoy um, sharing my story because I, I feel like, um, you know, other people can hear what, what I've gone through and maybe maybe like find some inspiration to, to, to share their own story as well, because I found that a very healing process for me. Absolutely. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Mm. And we 
we will be back with our next episode. I'm Kim and I'm the mom. And I'm Anna, I'm the daughter, and we'll see you again soon. You want to say goodbye, Damien, real quick? <laughs> yeah, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thank you guys for joining us today. Stay tuned for more podcasts from Anna and Kim on the new series, Not Ideal, But We're Going With It. Also, check out their new website at www.notideal.net.